Kiko Iyer is a journalist, writer, traveler, biographer, and speaker. He's been a journalist for Time magazine for 27 years. He's written for a vast number of publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Harper's. He's written 11 books, and his last one was called The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. The Open Road was based on his travels with the Dalai Lama over the past 30 years. The New Yorker had this to say about The Open Road. Quote, The bracing virtue of Ayer's thoughtful essay is that it allows us to imagine the Dalai Lama as something of an intellectual and spiritual adventure, exploring fresh sources of individual identity and belonging in the newly united world. End quote. Interestingly, Ayer himself comes across as an intellectual and spiritual adventure, and when speaking with him, one witnesses the wisdom of experience and the innocence of curiosity. My name is Sonny Katenjin, and this is Sight Unseen, a weekly program that speaks with artists of all different mediums, uncovering the unseen aspects of their work and life. Pico Ayer was in San Francisco for a talk that he gave with Dr. Paul Ekman about their individual experiences with the Dalai Lama, and what we might learn from those as individuals and as a society. Hosted by the Asia Society and moderated by Shambhala Sun, the talk reflected on how Ayer and Ekman had met the Dalai Lama, what they learned from him, and the legacy he is creating. Pico Ayer met the Dalai Lama when he was 17. The Dalai Lama was virtually unknown then, and Ayer's father, a professional philosopher, wanted to meet him and wanted to bring his son along. I wondered what Pico Iyer was like at 17, and how did that first meeting set him off on a life path? This is part one of a two-part interview. Stay tuned for that and more on this week's Sight Unseen. I was just a typical 17-year-old at boarding school in England. Uh, the people I really wanted to meet were Keith Richards and Jerry Garcia, uh, and I, I was being taken back to India by my parents, who were born in India. I'd almost never been there. So they wanted to introduce me to my grandparents and uncles and aunts, all the family I'd, I'd never had a chance to meet. And I was happy about that. And then my father said, well, why don't we meet uh, my colleague, the Dalai Lama? And I probably didn't know whom he was then. And as you were saying, nobody really knew who the Dalai Lama was. This was 1974. But we got into the train in Delhi Station and took an overnight train to this little town called Patankot and then got into... Uh, a taxi that wound around the zigzagging curves of the Himalayas or foothills of the Himalayas for four hours and just went to the last house on the road, a little yellow, modest building, rang the doorbell and went in to talk um, to the Dalai Lama. Uh, really, I can remember even 10 years later in the early 80s when I was living in New York, I'd mentioned the Dalai Lama. Nobody even knew if he was an existing person or somebody out of, out of myth or something like the abominable snowman or whatever. It's remarkable how quickly he's become a member of the neighborhood. Uh, and so as my father, who is a professional philosopher, was talking to the Dalai Lama that, on that day, uh, they had a long conversation about all kinds of high philosophical concepts. And I was a 17-year-old boy. I was tuning out. I was trying not to listen. But I think something important really did stick in me. And that meant that as soon as the Dalai Lama made his first trip to the U.S., which was five years later, I went to hear him, and then I went to Tibet. And then really, ever since, so 35 years now, um, I've been revisiting Dharamsala and, and traveling with him all all over the place. So, you know, you mentioned uh, Jerry Garcia and, and Keith Richards. There were, the, the 70s were a time when 
Buddhism and, and that, that sort of thinking was coming to, to the West. Uh, do you think that that surge of popularity had a tremendous amount to do with that surge of popularity of Buddhism here, the surge of popularity of the Dalai Lama, kind of mirrored that? Do you think that's why people became so engaged and interested with him? It's interesting. As you say, uh, Buddhism was especially prevalent in the arts then, but it was nearly always Zen Buddhism. And I think in 1968, there were only two Tibetan centers in the whole Western world. By the turn of the century, there were 40 in New York City alone. So I think really what happened with the sudden visibility of the Dalai Lama in Tibet was people took their interest in Buddhism that was nascent and beginning to to burden and went, in many cases, from Zen to Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and again, I think if you mentioned the fundamental concepts of Tibetan Buddhism, even in the 70s, almost nobody would have heard of it, though Chogyam Trungpa was beginning to, to teach in Boulder, Colorado. So yes, I think the Dalai Lama, in some ways, in the course of his life, has taken Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism and made them global and made them a part of every neighborhood from Australia to Paris to Mexico even. Now, it's one thing to meet someone like the Dalai Lama at a young age like that, or you know, at, at the age in which you're starting to truly discover who you are and what your direction in life might be, and to investigate more. But to actually continue that investigation over the course of several decades is something quite different. What, what kept that relationship going for you? Why did you feel either the need for that or the importance of it in your life? Such a good question. I think most people who meet the Dalai Lama, and I think you were saying the same thing, it's, um, it's a surprising and disarming experience. And somehow to meet someone in so high a position who's so accessible and so open and instantly projects himself as your closest friend and you feel that he's your closest friend has a surprisingly strong effect on anyone. The other part of the component was that uh, for 27 years now I've been a journalist for Time magazine. So I've been spending most of my time in North Korea and Beirut and Sri Lanka and El Salvador and places in the middle of war and difficulty. So to go back and forth between essentially war zones and this unusually realistic, clear-sighted man who's talking about peace, inevitably I started to think, what could he offer that could shed light on these seemingly intractable problems? And I suppose the last part of of the equation was because of that initial meeting when I was 17, reluctant meeting, uh, as soon as Tibet opened up to the world, uh, I went to visit it in the early 80s. And I think anyone who goes to Tibet is so moved by the power of the landscape, those sharp blue skies and the thin air and the shafts of light coming into the dusty little chapels and the monks murmuring, and so moved by the warmth of the hospitality of the people who basically had never seen foreigners before and very excited to see us, and so moved by the way they're keeping their culture alive in the midst of great difficulty and oppression, that anyone who goes to Tibet comes back and feels, well, this is a part of my life now, and I really want to try and, and do justice to it, and also to share what I've had a chance to learn from the Dalai Lama and from Tibet uh, with as many of my friends as possible. I mean, I don't know if this is an answerable question, but could you imagine how different the ways in which your life would have been different had you not had this sort of uh, kind of part that was the base of it all for the last 30 years? How would your life have been different? Mm, It is very hard uh, to imagine that. Uh, And I should say I'm not a Buddhist. And I haven't become a Buddhist, although I've learned so much from the Dalai Lama. But you're right, I think base note is a wonderful way to put it. And so it's meant that whatever I'm doing in the world, and often as a journalist for Time magazine, one's in the thick of the least exalted stuff, just having that as a a counter and a compliment, reminding you what's real. Because I think 
the, the strongest quality of the Dalai Lama for me is that he's a realist. And Buddhism is about looking at what's really going on and seeing what can be done with it. And I think that's very tonic because we all, including me, get lost in our speculations or our ideologies or our projections. And just to have that bringing us back to base, as it were, to use your phrase, um, has been a really helpful thing. And I think as the years have gone on, I've seen more and more how much, without trying to, I've learned and absorbed from the Dalai Lama. And it can only be a help, especially in a journalist's profession, I think. Well, last night you mentioned a few things, and when I say last night, I'm referring to a talk that you had with uh, Dr. Paul Ekman about the Dalai Lama and the way it was led by the editor of Shambhala Sun. It was about the way in which he affects us as individuals and can affect us as as a um, community and as a society. Uh, You had said a couple of things that you um, had kind of learned from him. One of them was, and simple things, one of them was turning off the light every time you leave a room. Which I, which I learned from my grandfather. And the other, not that I always do it, and the other uh, that I thought was really beautiful was um, uh, thinking about kindness when you take a shower in the morning, mm. when you do somewhat innocuous, seemingly inconsequential things, doing something that could be very consequential. So those are two things that you mentioned. What are some other things that you find that you incorporate into your life um, from having learned in being in his presence or spending time with him? I think one of the main things is that you can change the world by changing how you look at the world. So I've always grown up in foreign countries. I'm, I'm privileged, but I'm something of an exile. And of course, the Dalai Lama is the most visible exile in the world. And the minute he became an exile, he didn't start mourning for the country he'd lost, looking back to the past, seeing himself as impaired in some ways. He saw himself as liberated. And he saw himself suddenly able to do all kinds of things he couldn't have done at home. And it's just by almost switching a toggle in your mind. And again, it's such an everyday but universal kind of human prescription to say that whatever situation you're confronted by, you can look at it one way and it seems impossible and only a source of sadness. But just take a wider perspective, that's a phrase he often uses, or look at it from a different angle and suddenly you see that it's opening doors that you never imagined. You know, one of the engaging things about the Dalai Lama is he's so eager to talk to and to learn from everyone. And when I was traveling with him recently, I travel with him for a week every year when he comes to Japan, we went to a girls' school, just a girls' high school in a little town. He spent a whole morning talking to the students. And one of them said, you know, what do you do when you're frustrated? And clearly she's speaking from her life in a very sincere and unembarrassed way. And he said, well, I know exactly what you're saying. And he was clearly thinking about the Tibetan situation with China. He said, just take a wider perspective. Don't look at yourself. Just look from the other person's point of view. And suddenly you feel a lot better and you can see things that you can do. So just as you said so wonderfully, I think part of his power is I see him as a doctor of the mind, really. And like any doctor, he's leaving his religion behind, but he's just writing prescriptions, simple things that anyone can, um, can perhaps implement in her life with her, with her neighbors, with her loved ones, with her bosses. Um, and he always says, well, here's what I use. Try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, throw it out and listen to somebody else. But uh, very pragmatic and down to earth, I think. It's great training as a journalist as well, looking at things from all these different perspectives and taking a larger view and, and being objective. It's, as it, it does sort of what you seem to have learned from the Dalai Lama seems to help and support you as, as a journalist as well. So, uh, so many people are searching for happiness. Mm-hmm. And at one of the reasons why hundreds of thousands of people flock to Central Park to see His, the, His Holiness speak I don't think it's because they necessarily want to learn about Tibet, but they want to get that glimmer of happiness that they're hoping for. Yes. Are you intrinsically a happy person? Were you born a happy person? And do, or do you feel like um, this experience in your life, this friendship that has formed in your life, 
has really aided you in your path to happiness? Well, I think I am intrinsically somewhat of an optimist, and I always see the glass as, as half full. Uh, and I've been born in easy circumstances. I've never had to go through war, or great poverty, or privation. Though I did have my husband down and lose everything, but still, everyone has their hardships. So I think I've been fortunate, and I am, I am like that. But as you know, because I know you've studied happiness a lot, people always say that most people have a base note, a kind of base point, the way that they have a, uh, some aspect of their body that they're born with, but we can work on it to, to develop and sharpen. And so probably through um, the Dalai Lama and other wise people I've met, I've realized, well, it's nice to, to be fundamentally optimistic, but still, it's not something one can take for granted. And just like my writing or the way I look at the world or all the aspects of my life, my relationships, it's something I can always improve and uh, take that base and try and see how I can make it more durable and, 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 and clearer. So I'm not sure exactly how I've tried to do that, but uh, I do feel that uh, I'm, I'm not easily depressed, which is a fortunate thing. And there's constant renewal in your life, I imagine. I mean, uh, you know, the, the traveling, since that, you know, I, yes, you're identified as a travel writer, but I, I think you're more of a writer that happens to travel. You know, I think that seems to make more sense, especially based on the broad things that you've written about. But uh, it keeps you, I, I, I find that it must constantly keep you in the moment, you know, because you're falling into a new space, uh, into a new place, you're on your toes, and there's also that sense of impermanence because you're you're in one place and then that place is left you and you're in a, a new place. Those are two seemingly fundamental aspects of, of Buddhism. Is, is that do you find that that's so for you? Do you find that you are easily placed in the moment, even though you're not a Buddhist? Mm. That just inevitably kind of is part of your daily practice in a way. I think you're absolutely right, and, and I so appreciate what you just said. I, I agree. I don't think I'm a travel writer, but I do travel a lot. So I, I think part of the beauty of, of uh, travel is, is that it's really a training and attention, and it causes you and, and, and moves you to see in a way that you never would in your regular life. So you're absolutely right. I think when I'm at home, uh, I sleepwalk through my days often, and I take most things for granted, and I also feel I'm in control of things, which is a, the wrong feeling, but I live with that illusion. And as soon as I'm out in the world, wherever it happens to be, San Francisco or North Korea, uh, instantly I'm taking in much more. I'm much more vulnerable, which I think is a good thing. Uh, I'm much more open to being instructed, uh, illuminated, or unsettled than I would be normally. And yes, I think I've heard people talk about it as be beginner's mind, to use another uh, Buddhist phrase. And I think that's a beauty, that you're, you're a child again, and you're ready to be formed uh, at every moment, and you're leaving your regular self behind. Uh, I, I find I get very imprisoned in my habits and my prejudices when I'm at home, and I think I know about the world. And as soon as I'm out in the world, I know I don't know a single thing, and, and I can leave all my preconceptions um, behind and, and try to, to learn something new. So I, I do think it's a very good, uh, good training, and, um, and, uh, and it's training in dealing with the unknowable in some ways, and training in trust, because when you're walking down the streets of Damascus and a person comes up to you and asks you for a favor or invites you to his home for lunch, you really don't know what's going on. Uh, and so you're thrown back on some essential questions and, um, and also just witnessing the circumstances of most people in the world is a great instruction, especially for those of us who live in the kind of gated community that's California. You, so you mentioned home a few times, and there are lots of interviews I've read of yours in which there's been this question of home and do you have a home and is home important to you? And what I've come to understand is that, you know, that wasn't one of the priorities of your life, that having a home and being grounded in a place wasn't necessarily something that's important for you. Um, but now you do identify with, with a home from what you're saying, or at least there's a place that you mention home. Is it because your wife is there? Is it wherever your wife is is your home? Is it because 
it happens to be a place you find yourself spending more time? Or what, what is home, at least for you? I think it's a variation on, on what you said. You're absolutely right, because I was born to Indian parents in England, and then we moved to California when I was seven. So already I had bits of India and California and England inside me, but was not really a part of any of those communities. And as your question was suggesting, I live now in Japan. But I think home has really always been something I carry around inside me, like a snail, a set of values and friendships and interests. So wherever I am in the world, including in this hotel right now, um, I'll have the pictures of my wife and my carry on. I'll have uh, my favorite Graham Greene book there. I'll have maybe a Leonard Cohen song in my head. I'll have what I know is closest to my heart. And that I really take with me everywhere. And the physical meaning of home has never been so important for me. And I've never really wanted to feel affiliated to just one place or stuck in one place. And I always had that feeling then, as I mentioned, my house burnt down. And so that really underlined for me, a house is not a home. And my home would have nothing to do with the soil, but something to do with soul. And I suppose I do spend a lot of time in Japan now, but I, I spend it there um, as an alien. I've been there 21 years on a tourist visa. So in some ways, I might claim it as an important home for me, the home of my heart, the place I feel a mysterious connection to. But the Japanese would never claim me as one of them. Uh, and I spend a lot of time in a monastery uh, here in California, Benedictine, though I'm not Catholic. And that is a very deep home because that's absolutely changeless. Whatever is going on in the world and in my life, I enter that place and I'm back in eternity in some ways. And I think all of us need those. But I don't think we need actually, or I've never needed, a house or a community around me or a single passport to carry. And, I, and, and when I was small, I thought this was unusual to live almost between the categories uh, in, in a territory of my own. And I was the only Indian kid or dark-skinned kid in all my classes. And now, of course, not so many years later, 21st century, I think, is being shaped by people just like me. Most of the people I see in San Francisco or New York or Toronto or London or Paris are, like me, from many different cultures and creating a kind of stained-glass hole out of those cultures and redefining home and making home something mobile and portable that they carry around as they carry around their laptop or their Blackberry or, um, or their address book. And I think that's an exciting new development, that home has gone global in a way. Well, home has definitely gone global. I think it takes a lot of guts to really travel the way that you do and, and relinquish yourself of the need for a tangible home. I mean, the notion of buying a house is, is still very important in people's lives. The notion of belongings also still very important in people's lives. So it's true that we're much more global now because of email and the ease of flying and you know, Skype, but there's there's still an attachment to having things mm -hmm. and to those things being a reflection of us and essentially us. So I think when your house does burn down, when you lose those things, that is a huge and deep and profound lesson. You mentioned Graham Greene, which I think you might be referring to The Quiet American. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a great website uh, that was created by a, a sound artist here uh, named Aaron Zim. It's called quietamerican.org. And on it, it's, it's all field recordings. And on it is something called One Minute Vacations, where he's had people record, you know, a one minute from Caracas or one minute from Bangladesh or one minute from wherever they might be and create a vacation. When you're at home, how do you create a vacation for yourself? Do you create vacations for yourself without traveling? How do you escape without actually moving? 
I take a walk, though I guess that involves a li- little bit of movement. But um, you're absolutely right. I don't think travel requires a great, great physical transportation uh, at th- this point. And I suppose it really, you know, Proust famously said, the point of discovery is not seeing new sites, but looking with new eyes. So if I'm in my hometown, whether I call that hometown Santa Barbara or Japan, I will say to myself, imagine I've just arrived from Bangladesh or Tibet and I'm walking around California or Japan. Everything will be new, exciting, mystifying to me. And so instantly I will start looking at the things that I otherwise walk past uh, and um, be amazed by them often. And I guess that underlines what we were saying about the Dalai Lama, which is really that it's just a change in perspective that changes uh, everything around you. you're right. I mean, I've never had a difficult time uh, taking a one-minute vacation while at my desk, uh, in memory, in imagination, or in my reading. And I think part of the excitement of the modern world is, let's say, you're somebody here in San Francisco, an elderly lady in Chinatown, who's never moved outside to have five square blocks in her 80 years. When she goes down the street here in San Francisco now, she's being surrounded by people from Vietnam, Armenia, El Salvador, (laughs) Ethiopia, uh, and uh, Jamaica, uh, surrounded by their customs, by their music, by their rhythms, their stories and histories. And so she's actually traveling without even choosing to. But I think that's an exciting thing. You don't have to go to those far-off places. Now they're coming to your doorstep. Uh, And if you never leave your house, they're still coming at you through turn on the radio and you're hearing music from Angola. Pick up a book from the news, from from your bookshelf, and it's probably from Colombia. Go to the movies, and it's likely from Iran. And I think that's a great benefit we have in this new century that even two two generations ago people didn't have. And so I've thought take this reality and really turn it into a possibility, make the most of doing these things that my grandparents couldn't have dreamed of doing. I was just recalling, um, my husband's British and we were visiting his mom in England and the three of us were sat together on the couch looking at Google Maps Mm. from the terrain view and uh, South America and figuring out where we would go, what we would do, zooming in on little towns. And for about 45 minutes, we were in South America. Mm. Well, of course, it was through a screen, but, you know, there was a slight vacation that we took in in our own minds. You you mentioned so many um, Buddhist tenets that you sort of I mean, maybe unintentionally ascribed to, but you've never decided to become a Buddhist. I mean, there are lots of people that say either that they are a Buddhist um, and they're not necessarily living in a monastery. They're not necessarily uh, meditating for several hours a day, but they still see themselves as a Buddhist. What has been your resistance around that or your desire to, uh, yeah, not not Mm -hmm. become a Buddhist or, or, as you said, a Benedictine monk or whatever it might be? Too lazy. <laughs> you know, one thing uh, that comes out of both talking to Dalai Lama for 35 years and living in Japan, when I first went to Japan, my idea was to live in a Zen temple. And that experience and talking to the Dalai Lama underlined to me, it's not something to be taken on lightly. It's a lifelong commi- commitment, like taking on a, a spouse, basically. Uh, and the Dalai Lama always stresses it requires real determination, hard work, and you know, the, the amount of time that you or I would put into taking ballet classes or a piano class or whatever times 50 probably if you really want to make that the center of your life so I've shied away from that all enveloping commitment and I've also listened to the Dalai Lama who as you know tells people when he comes to the US for example please don't become Buddhists because he's seen how easily uh, 
how much gets lost in translation between cultures, how easily it's misinterpreted, how easily um, we, we're not in a position really to make discerning judgments about this very traditionally um, philosophy that belongs on the far side of the world. And he always says, uh, study within your own traditions where your roots are deepest. Don't become a Buddhist. But please you know, feel free to learn from Buddhists. And I've learned from many Buddhists the way I've learned from the scientists and doctors that I meet in my, in my regular life without having to take on all of their, um, their philosophy or thinking. And I suppose um, spiritually, I've, I think I'm lucky to be kind of a global being. Uh, so I was born to Hindu parents, and I was educated at Anglican schools, and I live in Japan, deeply Buddhist country, uh, and I spent nine years researching Islam uh, for, for a novel. And I understand that really you have to have one commitment for it to be a deep one, and maybe I've failed on that count, but at least uh, I've had the benefit of learning from a variety uh, of perspectives, and as you were saying before, to, I think, be able to dream myself into the other a little bit, uh, so that none of those religions are hostile to me. And I think, as I travel the world, I hear a lot of people saying terrible things about Islam, or terrible things about fundamental Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity, or in other parts about Hinduism. And so, having learned from all of those, I think I'm less likely to see any of them as misguided, and to see each one of them has a very distinctive uh, beauty to convey. And it's probably the, you know, it sounds ideal to kind of um, glean from all these different religions, which, you know, ultimately are quite similar in certain ways, just different manifestations, different practices. I mean, I'm making a general statement, but I, I, I mean, and, and I'm actually adopting it for my grandma, but I do believe pretty much everything she says. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that it is, a, it, is, it is a privilege to be able to be in that position, to have learned so much and be able to take what is best from all those. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned your, your wife, you mentioned uh, the commitment that much like a religion takes, mm -hmm. a relationship takes. And I've, I've often wondered uh, what it would be like to be married to uh, a, a traveler, someone that may not be home all the time, and how that affects a relationship. And I just, I'm curious about it. I mean, how, how does that manifest in your relationship? How does it affect it? And does it bring about challenges? Does it bring, I mean, at, on the other hand, you and your wife get to spend a week with the Dalai Lama every year. <laughs> so that's, that's fantastic. So, so yeah, how, how, how does it manifest and, and work? I think it was a choice that she made. When I met her, she was married. She'd never been on a plane. She'd never been outside her hometown of Kyoto. She was living a fairly conventional um, Japanese life to a husband who had no interest in travel whatsoever. And I think all of that quickened her interest in travel. And, and being Japanese um, and, maybe, and Buddhist, I suppose, it's very pragmatic. So she thought, well, this is not ideal to be with you, Pico, who's spending a few months of the year away from me. But no situation I'm going to enter is ideal. Um, at least you're not drinking all the time, you're not beating me, and you're not being unfaithful to me. So there's no way that I can find the absolute perfect person. And if I'm going to have to deal with a difficulty, that's an easier difficulty for me to deal with. And I think what she probably also felt was she suddenly gets to see the world. And in fact, as we speak, you and I today here in San Francisco, I'm spending the next two months uh, talking about Tibet and the Dalai Lama here in America. She's actually flying to Dharamsala next week to spend a whole month with the Tibetans around the Dalai Lama's temple. So actually, she's getting to do all the travel that I would like to do while I'm, I'm um, just talking about it. And I think um, she's quickly seen that um, the, the whole world is exciting to her, really, perhaps more so than to me because I grew up uh, traveling. So as in many a relationship, I, the traveler, long for stillness more than anything. And she, a person who's had lots of stillness and groundedness in her life, longs for travel. And, and I think we found that it works together so that um, works nicely. So most of the time we're together, sometimes we're traveling 
around the world together, and sometimes we're going in different directions, which makes us even more excited um, when when we get to to meet. And just to go back to the religion point, if I may, uh, as uh, as we were talking, one thing I was remembering was all the wiser people um, I listened to always say, "Don't don't." partake of the salad bar school of religions. In other words, it doesn't work if you just take a little bit from here and, and a little bit from this one and a little bit from another. And the Dalai Lama, interestingly, when people ask him, always says, everyone's always stressing the similarities between religions, but we really have to stress the differences. And he always said, I don't want a world religion. There isn't a synthetic religion that works for everybody, just as there's no one body of medicine. So that's, I think that's an, an useful warning to keep in mind as I tell myself that I'm learning from uh, lots of different traditions. So you're so you're saying both. You're you're, con- you're 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 saying one thing and you're contradicting it. Uh, no. no, I'm saying that mine is a very imperfect way. That um, you know, in, uh, Indians sometimes say if you, it's much better to dig one ditch or well sixty feet deep than ten that are six foot deep. So I'm doing the ten that are six feet deep. And I'm, I'm, that's been my circumstances because I haven't given myself to anyone. Uh, so I try to make the most of that. But I, I can, can see that, that that's not the ideal way. And that if I were talking to Houston Smith or the Dalai Lama or any of the people that I love to listen to, they would all tell me, well, actually, okay to do what you're doing, but better to really give your heart in one place. Those were the words of Pico Iyer, journalist, writer, traveler, biographer, and speaker. To learn more about him and his work, explore. He has interviews and articles in lots of locales, and they are all worth reading. This was part one of a two-part interview. Next week, Iyer will share his thoughts on writing, American culture, and Cuba, amongst other things. My name is Sonny Katenjian. This is Sight Unseen, shedding light on the creative world through candid conversations with the artists of our time. You're listening to Resonance, 104.4 FM, the UK's first radio art station.